I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We began a series um, a couple of weeks ago, and we interrupted it, of course, for the um, Christmas holidays and so forth, but we started talking about Jesus as our high priest. And so I want to remind you of a couple of scriptures that we looked at before, and, and uh, we may cover a little bit of the ground that we did just to catch everybody back up and, and uh, get everybody on the same page. But in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, um, well, where do we want to start reading here? Let's start in verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, speaking of Jesus, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death, in other words, here was his purpose, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, and that is the devil. Now, it doesn't mean, obviously, it doesn't mean uh, do away with Satan altogether. It means do away with his power over you where spiritual death is concerned. And deliver them, verse 15, and deliver them who through fear of death were, their li- were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that means you and me, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliations for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor, that word means to aid or to relieve, them that are tempted. So the Bible tells us that the purpose for him taking on the, sin of the, the, the likeness of the seed of Abraham becoming flesh and blood was so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, folks, I don't know exactly how this works, and I don't claim to have all the answers about everything, but it's possible, if nothing more, than, than with God everything is possible. It's possible that, that redemption could have been accomplished a different way. It's possible that, that God could have come up with a different plan that would have affected the, the forgiveness of sins at least. But his plan was so that Jesus would be a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, folks, what I want, you to, get, what I want to try to get across to you is on the surface going to sound very simple. But I think we stumble over the simplicity of it. I think we fail to recognize what it really means when it says that Jesus' purpose is seated, his being seated at the right hand of God Everything about what he did was so that he could show mercy to you. Now let's read some other scriptures here in in Hebrews. How about Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. It says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Now the word profession is the same word translated confession in uh, in the other parts in the rest of the New Testament. for example, in uh, Romans chapter 10, where Paul is talking about the, the, um, uh, the method or the manner in which someone is saved, he said, For with the heart man, is, um, uh, man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's Romans 10.10. 10. Well, that word confession in Romans 10.10 10 is the same word profession here that's used throughout uh, the book of Hebrews. It's the same word. It means that he is, the, that because he is our high priest, passed into the heavens, we should hold fast our confession. In other words, Jesus being seated at the right hand of God should have something to do with what you say. That's what the Bible's telling us. It should have something to do with what you say. Now, that seemed, that's, a, um, that's a foreign concept to most of the church world outside of, okay, Jesus is at the right hand of God, so we're saved. So, pre, so Christians will confess the fact that they are saved, but that's as far as they go where, where confession is concerned. That can't be all that he's talking about here. And I'll prove it to you as we go. So it says, We should hold fast our profession or confession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now the word touched is an interesting word because whereas the, 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 the verse brings out the meaning that, uh, uh, that Jesus can relate to our weaknesses and relate to our shortcomings and so forth, the word touched is uh, the Greek word that's used here and translated touched in the English, uh, King James translation, is the Greek word that we get our English word sympathy from. It literally means to have compassion. It says Jesus has compassion 
with us in our weaknesses. In other words, the feeling of our infirmities that the Bible is referring to has everything to do with him being our high priest because he has compassion or mercy upon us. So what should we do because of this? Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly. You know, most people don't come boldly to the throne of grace. Most people slink in the back door. Most people are concerned about God being upset with them or, or did I do the right thing or wrong thing or, or where did I miss it or what didn't I do or, and that kind of stuff. The Bible says because Jesus has compassion on you, come boldly. Yeah, but I'm so weak. That's why you need compassion. That's why his mercy is such an important issue. Folks, if you did everything right, you wouldn't need mercy. People in, in, uh, in a courtroom setting that throw themselves on the mercy of the court, those are the folks that have done wrong. If you've done the right thing, you don't need the mercy of the court. Justice will do just fine for you if you're in the right. People that throw themselves on the mercy of the court are the ones that have done wrong. They're looking for, bail me out of this. Don't, don't deal with me according to what I deserve. That's what having compassion means. It says because Jesus doesn't deal with you according to what you deserve, come boldly to the throne of grace. Well, I'm so glad you're excited about this. <laughs> Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to, to help in time of need. Now turn back with me to the uh, book of Psalms, Psalm 145. I believe we looked at this last time we were together, but I want to I go there again. Now, folks, I would submit to you that the modern-day church has... Um, well, how do we say this? I would, I would submit to you that the modern-day church has defined the mercy of God as mercy to forgive sins. You talk about the mercy of God and, and Christians by and large, churches by and large, will say, oh, yeah, absolutely. Jesus is exalted. He is uh, raised to the right hand of the Father to show mercy for forgiveness of sins. But, folks, there's a lot of things that the Bible talks about the mercy of God that doesn't have anything to do with forgiveness of sins. In other words, the mercy of God goes a lot further and is a lot bigger than just forgiveness of sins. Now, let's see some things that the Bible says about mercy to begin with. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. It says, the Lord is gracious. Now, the word gracious means, if you looked it up in a dictionary, it's, it gives you a real bad definition because it uses the word grace to define itself. It, the word gracious literally means full of grace. Well, okay, if you don't know what grace is, that doesn't help. It literally means disposed to show favors. He's disposed to show favors. Now, what does that mean? Well, we all have natural tendencies. The way that our personalities are, the way that we were raised or whatever else you want to plug in there, we all have natural tendencies. Some people have a natural tendency to be outgoing. Other people have a natural tendency to be introverted. Other people have a natural tendency to think in a positive manner. Other people have a natural tendency to be pessimistic. Everybody has natural tendencies. In other words, there are certain ways that we are naturally disposed. That's what it means to have a natural tendency. It means that's your natural disposition. It's telling us this is God's natural disposition to show you favors. God's natural disposition, the way He is, is that his first thought about you, his first action towards you, his first inclination is to show you favors. What does that mean? Will you ever ask anybody for a favor? If they did it for you, did they do it because you deserved it or because they loved you or cared about you or something, some relationship position with you? It's based on relationship. People do you favors because they just want to do something for you. You don't have to prove why you're worth the favor. If you do that, you've earned it. It's not a favor. God's inclination is to show favors to you. Now, let me ask you this then. Based on what the Bible is telling us, what we've seen so far, why do so many Christians think that God's sitting in heaven waiting to drop the hammer on them? Why is the natural disposition of so many Christians... 
to think that God is just waiting, just looking for the chance to catch them doing the wrong thing so He can take His giant mallet in heaven and smash them in some way or another. Whether it means destroying their financially, destroying their health, destroying some part of their life, whatever. Why is the natural inclination of so much of the church to think, even when things are going good, it can't last? When God's natural disposition is to show favors to you. In other words, it's saying God's natural inclination is to make things good for you all the time. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, things aren't good for us all the time. Here come the the naysayers. Plenty of those around. I think some people operate in their Christian life the way some, uh, some brand new drivers drive. If you're teaching somebody to drive, man, they're aware of everything. They haven't gotten used to everything. They're aware of everything. They see a green light in the intersection. What do they do? They start slowing down. Because they're just sure that green light's going to turn red. I think that's the way a lot of people live their Christian lives. Good things are happening. God's blessing is upon them. And they're just thinking, this is too good to be true. This cannot last. God is naturally inclined to show favors to you. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Now, folks, what does it mean when somebody is full of something or when something is full of something? I know we use that in a derogatory term a lot of, a lot of times. But if a, if a glass of water is full of water, that means there's no room for anything else, right? Hold your finger here. We're going to come back to this. So often when you get to talking about this, the judgment of God is so ingrained in people's minds that they think, okay, well, yeah, but... That verse of Scripture can't mean exactly what it says because we know how God is a God of judgment. Look with me over to Isaiah chapter 30. Can I show you something about God's judgment? Isaiah chapter 30. I'm going to read verse 18 to you, and I hope you read this along with me. It says, and therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. Same word gracious, disposed to show favors to you. And therefore will the Lord wait. Now the word wait literally means put things off. He's putting things off. Something, we don't know yet what he's putting off. But he's saying he's putting things off so that he can show favors to you. And therefore will he be exalted. That's talking about Jesus being exalted to the right hand of the Father after the resurrection. And therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. It says the whole reason Jesus is raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God is to show mercy. Now that's what it's saying. Now notice the last phrase. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. Folks, when the Bible talks about God exacting judgment, it always talks about him exacting judgment upon sin. Not people. Yeah, but but what about tribulation? What about the judgment of God that comes down on tribulation? Yeah. He is forced to show judgment upon those on the earth that reject Jesus and therefore will not separate themselves from sin. But the judgment is always on sin. Jesus said himself, he said, I didn't come into the world to bring judgment. He said, I came to, to save the world. But yet the Bible says that he did judge something. Well, what did he judge? He judged or condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, he separated man from his sin. He took sin so that man could have mercy. I'm still glad you're excited. Back to, uh, back to uh, Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious, disposed to show favors, and full of compassion. That means there's no room for anything else. The reason that God is a God of judgment is very simply this. Because without judging sin, He can't show mercy to man. He did not make man and put him here on the earth so that someday He could get him. He put man here on the earth so that man would understand His righteousness and be a recipient of His mercy. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger. Thank God that's in there. Slow to anger 
and of great mercy. Now, folks, the word mercy and compassion are exactly the same words throughout the Old and the New Testament, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek. They both mean to be full of eager yearning to love tenderly. The Lord is full of eager yearning. He's full of tender love. He's slow to anger and of great eager yearning. He's of great tender love. The Lord is good to a few. How about the Lord is good to others? It says the Lord is good to all. Now some people read that and they, 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 they're naturally disposed to think, well, He's not good to me though. I know He's been good to other people. And the, so the thought is, and, and that's just to show that, that I don't measure up. Or that's just to trick us into thinking that sometimes He's good because He's never been good to me. You know, it's an interesting thing. The first thing that the Bible says that God demands of the, of the Christian when He gives His heart to Jesus is to change His thinking. If there is any area that the devil has done a number on the church, it's to make them think that God is waiting to get them rather than the good, loving, merciful God that He is. So the Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. That means there's never anything God's ever done that hasn't been based on or motivated by mercy. Eager yearning, tender love. Now folks, in Jesus' day, mercy meant more than what the modern day church has said that it, that, that it means today. For example, in Mark chapter 1, it tells us the story of the leper who comes to Jesus and says, I know you're able to heal me. Master, I believe you can heal me if you will. Now, what is he saying? He's in exactly the same position that most of the church world is in today. He says, I know you have the power. I just don't know if you will. Well, when it comes to healing today, you can't find any Christian anywhere that will say, no, God can't heal. Because it is ingrained in everybody's mind. Everybody understands that with God, all things are possible. Folks, I would submit to you that the devil is not concerned about you knowing that God is able. Because knowing God's ability does not provide faith. It does not produce faith to receive. The devil is perfectly willing for you to emphasize and magnify the ability of God. And that's exactly where most of the church world is. Most of the church world will talk about nothing is impossible with God. With God, all things are possible. And that produces not one ounce of faith in anybody. This guy, this leper in Mark chapter 1, he comes and he says, Jesus, I know you're able. I believe you're able. No problem. I've seen and heard what you've done with other people. Maybe that's the source of his, his knowing or believing that, that, uh, that he would be able to heal his leprosy if he only will. We don't know exactly why. I would assume, you know, if it wasn't him hearing the reports, what else would it be? Whatever the case is, however, he comes and he says, I believe you can. I believe you can. Folks, the devil knows God can. And that doesn't get him anywhere. That's why he knows it's not a problem to keep the church believing God can. But he has worked overtime to stress, and he's used church pulpits as his main weapon, to teach people that you can't really know if God will. So what are we left with? We're left in the same situation as the leper in Mark chapter 1. Jesus, when he hears what the leper says, I believe you can heal me if you only will. Jesus was moved with compassion and instantly touched the guy and said, I will be thou clean. And his leprosy disappeared. Now what did Jesus being moved with compassion, or what did Jesus showing mercy on the guy produce physical healing for his body. So in Jesus' day, mercy included healing. Now I know the modern day church will tell you for the most part that that doesn't belong to us today. Healing's been done away with, that passed away. Jesus was just doing that to prove that he was the son of God and, and all kind of other reasons. I, I get that. I know what the arguments are. The problem is you can't ever find anywhere in the New Testament can't ever find anywhere in the, the, uh, the ministry of Jesus in the four Gospels where Jesus said, I'm doing this to prove to you who I am. You can't do it. I know, that's the, I know that's the claim of the modern day church. The problem is Jesus never said it. Yet you can find again and again and again where Jesus was moved with compassion 
In other words, the healings were a revelation of God's mercy, not that he was the Son of God. Now, there are other times as well. As a matter of fact, turn with me over to, uh, let's look at one. Look with me over to Matthew chapter 20. There's a lot of them that we could look at, and we won't take time to do them all. But let's just look at one for, for an example here. Matthew chapter 20. Let's start reading in verse 29. It says, And as they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. This is speaking of Jesus. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying... Now notice what they cried out for. They cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou Son of David. And Jesus stood still and called them and said, What will ye that I shall do unto you? Now, folks, I want you to understand something very, very simple here. They called out for mercy. Jesus stopped and said, what do you want? Now, what does that mean? That means at the very least, mercy did not mean forgiveness of sins. If, G if they had called out for mercy, and mercy was what the modern day church says it is now, and that is the forgiveness of sins, Jesus would have very simply said, blessed be, be, be thou, you two blind guys, because your sins are forgiven. But when they ask for mercy, Jesus says, what do you want? Now remember, we just read over in uh, Psalm 145, verse 9, His tender mercies, plural. His tender mercies are over all of His works. We've al already seen in Mark chapter 1 that His mercy or His compassion on the leper caused the leper to be cleansed. So healing must be a part of His mercy. Jesus is simply asking them, okay, he, uh, apparently He's not taking anything for granted. Jesus can certainly see that they're blind. But he's not taking for granted that they want healing for their eyes. You ask for mercy, what do you want? What is it you're looking for? Then they say, Lord, their eyes may be opened. And Jesus had compassion on them. That's mercy. Same word, mercy. They asked for mercy, they got mercy. You remember what we just read over in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, I think it is? Let us come, or verse 16, let us therefore, since Jesus is touched with the feeling of our infirmities, He's our high priest, touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. They asked for mercy. What did they get? They got mercy. So Jesus had compassion upon them and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. The Bible tells us another story in Mark chapter 5 about the madman from Gadara. You remember this guy? He was out in the, the, the graveyard, living in the graveyard. They had tried to chain this guy up and he was breaking the, the chains. I mean, he had Samson-like strength because he was possessed with the devil. The devil's always got a counterfeit for the things of God. But the things of God always swallow up the things of the devil. You remember in Pharaoh's court when Moses threw down the rod and it turned into a snake. The magicians did the same thing. But then Moses' serpent swallowed up theirs. The devil's got a counterfeit for any and every uh, power or any and everything that God does. But God's always wins out. In other words, the devil's power that looks to be the same is never an equal match. So anyway, they tried to chain this guy up. They tried to, to put him in stocks and, and uh, you know, bind his feet and bind his hands together. Nothing works. He breaks out of all this stuff. He's running through the, the tombs naked and screaming and making all kinds of commotion, so much so that people are afraid to go to that part of the, the, where he is. He's in the region of Decapolis. The, the word Decapolis are the ten cities of Rome. These are cities that the Romans built inside the, the boundaries of Jerusalem, or inside the boundaries of Israel, excuse me, and, uh, and Jesus wouldn't minister in them. He'd minister in the, in the cities of Israel, but he wouldn't minister in the cities of Decapolis. He walked back and forth through the Decapolis area to get from one place to another, but he never would minister there, or at least not in the cities. So anyway, Jesus is walking through where the tombs are, and this guy comes screaming to Jesus and says, Master, uh, you know, uh, I know who you are. Have you come to torment me before the time? It's the devil in him that's speaking through him. And Jesus cast the devil out of him. You remember the story. He cast the devil, tells the devil to leave and the, and the devil screams again. And Jesus says, what's your name? He says, my name is Legion for we are many. So there's one in charge and others that are, that are helping him along. And Jesus cast them out. They go into the pigs and the pigs drown themselves into the sea. 
Even pigs have enough sense to know that being motivated by the devil is not a good thing. So then the Bible says that people from the countryside heard about Jesus being out there and they come and they see this guy clothed sitting in his right mind. When the devil is gone and you get in your right mind, you put your clothes back on. I wish the young people would figure that out. (laughs) Now the Bible tells us that when they see this guy sitting clothed, I mean, he's not making a commotion, he's not creating a disturbance, he's clothed and he's in his right mind, that's when they got afraid. Go figure. They were afraid of him when he was motivated by the devil, now he's in his right mind and everybody's scared. So they say to Jesus, you've got to leave. You've got to get out of here. We can't have you helping people around here. You've got to go. And so when Jesus is picking up and going, he's not making a fuss about it. He's not, you know, bringing down the judgment of God on anybody because they won't receive him. Jesus starts to go. The guy that's been delivered comes and says, Jesus, let me go with you. Don't leave me here with these people. They're afraid of me. Let me go with you. And Jesus says something very, very simple. He says, no, go back to your own country, to your own people, go back to where you came from and tell how the Lord has had compassion on you. So Jesus is identifying that the guy was set free because of the mercy of God. Jesus is saying, tell everybody how the Lord has had compassion or mercy upon you. Tell everybody the mercy that God showed upon you. Now, Matthew chapter 15 tells tells the result of this guy publishing everywhere that he went, telling about the Lord's compassion. It says great multitudes came to Jesus, and Jesus had one of the greatest ministry results of anything we have record of in the Bible. It said the lame walked. It said the maimed were made whole. The blind saw. There were miracles. There were signs and wonders and things that were taking place, all because it's the same region of Decapolis. Not the cities, but in the region. Same thing, same place rather, where the guy was who Jesus had had compassion on, showed mercy on, now he's begun to tell everybody about the compassion of the Lord upon him. Tell everybody how God has had mercy upon him. And as a result, Jesus has some of the greatest miracles among the multitudes that we have record of in the Scripture. Why? Because people found out about the mercy of God to set them free. The mercy of God in Jesus' day included deliverance and healing. Now the Bible also tells us that Jesus fed the multitudes, the 4,000 in Mark chapter 8, because He had compassion on the multitude. He said, I have compassion, tells His disciples, Mark chapter 8, about verse 2, somewhere around there. He said, I have compassion on the multitude because they've been with me for three days, haven't had anything to eat, and they faint. They're growing weak. So He says, to, or one of the disciples say, well, what can we do to feed these people? Where are we going to be able to buy enough bread? He doesn't say where are we going to get the money. He said where could we buy enough bread to feed all this multitude? Now folks, we know how big the multitude was. It says it was 4,000 men plus the women and children. So when the Bible talks about great multitudes, it's talking about a crowd of people. It's talking about crowds in the thousands. And those are the multitudes that Jesus, in one case, it says healed them all. So the mercy of the Lord was pretty extensive in Jesus' day where healing was concerned. Well, they bring him seven loaves and two fishes, I think, something like that. And Jesus blessed them, and he broke it, and he multiplied the loaves and the fishes so that the multitude was fed. Now, what in Jesus' day, the result was that, uh, that everybody was fed. Why? Because he had compassion on the multitude. So in Jesus' day, the mercy of God included provision. I know in the modern-day church, they say it's just forgiveness of sins. I get that. But in Jesus' day, the mercy of God included healing, The mercy of God included deliverance. And the mercy of God included provision. Now, folks, I want you to understand something about the provision of Jesus. The Bible says, gave instruction that we, the people of God, should have compassion on the poor. Jesus did that. Jesus had compassion on the poor, but He took care of the ones that followed Him. So you can have it either way you want. If you want to be one of the poor that God sometimes is able to get to cross to you, a little bit here and there, you can have that. That's where most of the church seems to be. But if you want to be one of the ones that Jesus takes care of, be one of His followers. 
So again, you got the mercy of the Lord in Jesus' day. Healing, deliverance, provision. And in one case, we see that Jesus even forgave sins. When the guy was let down through the roof, you remember the story? The guy that was, that was crippled, he was let down through the roof. Jesus looked at him. Everybody is gathered around. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. Son, your sins are forgiven you. Man, everybody thought that was blasphemous. They did not believe that the mercy of God through Jesus could be extended toward forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' day, it was just exactly the opposite of what it is today. In Jesus' day, they were okay with healing. They were okay with deliverance. They were okay with provision. Okay, do all the miracles you want, but don't you dare say a word about forgiveness of sins. Modern-day church says, you better not say a word about healing. You better not... You're weird if you talk about devils. You're greedy if you talk about provision. Because all mercy means is forgiveness of sins. Think about what that means. That means that the mercy of God in Jesus' day, healing, provision, deliverance, as well as forgiveness of sins, has been changed to forgiveness of sins today, according to most of the modern-day church. Now, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, Jesus died for us while we were yet enemies of God. Why did He do that? So that He could redeem us from spiritual death. In other words, provide us forgiveness of sins, which most of the modern day church says. So that means that in Jesus' day, His servants, doesn't call them sons, His servants had the mercy of healing, deliverance, provision, and forgiveness of sins. Because they were servants of God. But now, God has shown His mercy of forgiveness for His enemies, but there's no mercy left for His children. Let's see how that stacks up. Turn with me to Psalm 25. Psalm 25. We're going to look at a couple of scriptures just real quickly here. We'll, we'll buzz through some of these without a whole lot of comments, but I want you to see the point. Psalm 25, verse 10. It says, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep His covenant and His testimonies. Now I want you to notice the principle that Psalm 25, verse 10 sets forth is that the mercy of God is available to those who keep His Word. That's what His covenant and His testimony amount to in modern day language, right? Those that are keepers or doers of the Word, right? Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. A lot of verses we could read here, but let's just start with verse 9 and get right to it. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 6. Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 14. Here's something that Solomon said. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in the heaven nor in the earth, which keepeth covenant and showeth mercy unto thy servants that walk before thee with, their, with all their hearts. We could go on and on and on, but folks, I want you to understand something. Time and time and time again, it says the mercy of God is for those who keep His Word. That's what it means. Love Him with all your heart. Keep His testimonies and so forth. It's all the same thing. It can all be categorized into being doers of the Word. It says the mercies of God are available to those that are doers of the Word. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to take for granted that you know some of the things 
that I'll refer to without taking time to look at them in Scripture. But I'll give you the reference for them in case you don't so that you can check them out for yourselves. Because I don't want you to take my word for anything. It's very important that you see these things for yourself. Because, folks, we've been lied to about the mercy of God. And what I mean by that is not that the things that we were told about the mercy of God, specifically that it applies to forgiveness of sins, is untrue. It is true. But that's not all there is to it. The mercy of God is not just for forgiveness of sins. Hebrews chapter 2, well, let's start in chapter 2 again and read some of the verses that we just read a few minutes ago. Verse 17, Hebrews chapter 2, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. In other words, to be flesh and blood. That or so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself having suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or aid or relieve them that are tempted. Chapter 3. You know this letter wasn't written in chapter and verse any more than you write one in chapter and verse. So it continues with the same thought. Wherefore, because this is true. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. Word profession is the word confession. Consider the high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. Consider the high priest of our confession. Now, what does the high priest do? Paul, or whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, I think it was Paul, but whoever wrote the book of Hebrews goes into great detail talking about what the work of the high priest is. The work of the high priest is to administer things from God to the people and to administer things from the people to God. That's why the high priest, his work was necessary on the Day of Atonement because the people would bring the sacrifices, they would bring their offerings, they would bring the things that would, uh, uh, were necessary to, to fulfill the requirement of the ritual sacrifice of the law. But then the high priest, after taking care of the individual sacrifices of the people, then his job was to take something, the, the blood of the, the bull or the goat, whatever the sacrifice was, on the Day of Atonement. He had to take that which represented the sins of the people, and then he had to present it to God. That's the work of the high priest. The work of the high priest is to work between the two parties, God and man. The Bible is telling us that Jesus is a faithful high priest. He's a merciful high priest that administers things from us to God. Now, what do, we know what God administered to us. God administered forgiveness of sins. He administered redemption. The plan of redemption from Him to us is redemption. What is there from us to Him? It's got to be a two-way thing. In order for a high priest to have something to do, he's got to work both ways. Well, we know what Jesus did in administering from God to man. He administered redemption. That includes forgiveness of sins. That is not exclusive to forgiveness of sins, according to what the Bible says, but it includes forgiveness of sins. It's basically righteousness and all the benefits that go along with it. So that's what Jesus ministered, or ministered to man from God. What does He minister to God from man? Hebrews 3.1 He's the high priest of your confession. In other words, the only thing he has to work with toward God on your behalf are the words of your mouth. Let me prove this to you. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're going to need to read the whole story here to get the import. Um, start in verse 14, Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when he, Jesus, came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. Now, we don't know why they were greatly amazed when they saw him. He's just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, so maybe there's a residual effect that they see. I don't know. At any rate, he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. I think all of them are dumb, but this one was keeping the boy from talking. And wheresoever he... Well, how smart is it to rebel against God, you know? And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnashes with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Please notice, they could not. 
Doesn't say they wouldn't, it says they couldn't. Yet Jesus has already given them authority to, to uh, heal diseases and to cast out devils. So something is stopping them from being able to do what Jesus said they could do. That's the point where a lot of people give up and say, yeah, well, I knew that stuff didn't work. But there's a reason. Jesus knows the reason. The disciples didn't know the reason. That's why Jesus got results and they didn't. And he answered him. Please notice he answered him. He did not answer the disciples. It said he answered him, the father, and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. What is Jesus telling us the problem is? The man doesn't have faith. He wants results, but he doesn't have faith. He's in the same boat as the leper in Mark chapter 1. He came believing Jesus could. Now he's not even so sure about that anymore when the disciples failed. But he has no knowledge. He has no faith. He has no belief in whatsoever that Jesus will do something for him. I'll prove it to you by the words of his own mouth. So Jesus says, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? And verse 20, they brought him the son, unto Jesus. And when the, the boy saw him, the evil spirit in the boy, really, straightway the spirit tore him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And Jesus asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And the father answered, Since he was a child. And oftentimes, he's going to tell him the history now, and oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. Now, folks, can I ask you a question? What's the difference in this guy asking for mercy in, in Matthew chapter 20, the two blind men asking for mercy? Sounds like the same request, doesn't it? It sounds like the same request, but Jesus does not deal with them in the same way because Jesus has already identified the problem on the part of the Father. The guy now is saying, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If there's any power available to you, please show mercy unto us. Does Jesus want to show mercy to him? Certainly. That's why he helps him find the answer. But what does Jesus identify is the necessary ingredient for the mercy of God to be realized on behalf of this father? Faith. Jesus turns it around and says, if you can believe. All things are possible to him that believeth. What is he telling us? He's telling us that even here on the earth, he was administering to God on behalf of the people based on their faith. Now that he's exalted, for what purpose? That he might show mercy? What's the necessary ingredient? He's still the high priest of our confession. It's still up to us to believe. That's why the Bible keeps saying, seeing that Jesus has passed into the heavens, seeing that He's a merciful and faithful high priest, seeing that He can relate to your weaknesses and to your infirmities, those are the things that keep us from coming to the presence of God, folks. We feel so unworthy that we don't want to come. The Bible is saying, Jesus knows how you feel. Therefore, come boldly. Not therefore, stay away till you feel better which is what most people do. They'll sin, wait a few days and hope God's forgotten and then come back. I know what I'm talking about. I lived there for a long time. Last thing you want to do is talk to God right after you mess up. Right after you commit sin, the last person you want to talk to is God. But what does the Bible do? The Bible tells us since Jesus can relate to the feeling of our infirmities, that's when we need to come. When you feel the weakest is when you need to believe in His mercy. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling the Father here. He says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Now think about where Jesus is taking this guy. He's taking this Father. He may have had faith in, in, in God's ability to help when He first came to the disciples, but they messed that all up. He comes to Jesus' company. Jesus isn't there. He's on the mountain of transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. That just leaves the lower nine. Is that a problem? No, they've been given the same authority to cast out devils as everybody else has. So I can just see Thomas. Good old Thomas. Man of faith and power. Can't you see Thomas standing up and saying, No, there's no problem. Jesus doesn't have to be here. We cast out devils all the time. 
They must try and fail. Because they later asked Jesus, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus says, because you didn't believe too. In other words, what you saw affected what you believe you had. Man, you could preach there forever. Because so much of the church world believes what they have based on what they can see in their results. Smith Wigglesworth, uh, there was a, a, a situation where uh, Wigglesworth was ministering in a certain place and, and there was this very, very well-known situation where this, uh, this girl was uh, possessed of the devil and she was exhibiting, I mean, just a, just a wisp of a girl, but she was exhibiting superhuman strength. She would throw people out of the room when they'd come to try to minister to her and things like that. It got to where her family just had to keep her locked away. Nobody could, could hardly get to her at all. And so the pastor of the church that Wigglesworth was, was ministering in told him the story and, and said, uh, you know, I, I, would you be willing to go and, and, uh, and minister to her? And Wigglesworth said, yeah, sure. Well, Wigglesworth's, you know, fame was pretty well known. You know, he was, people had known that's the ways that God had used him and things like that. So this pastor is just beside himself. Oh, this is so great. It's going to be such a great testimony. It's going to be so, such a great, great thing that God's going to do here. So Wigglesworth goes to the house takes off his coat, they take him to the room where, um, uh, where the, this little girl is, he walks into the room, and the pastor is kind of behind him, hiding. He's been there before and chased, been chased out. And so he goes into the room behind Wigglesworth, kind of hiding behind his shoulders a little bit, and so this girl locks eyes with the pastor, first and foremost, and starts cussing him one end up and down the other. I mean, just foul, foul stuff start coming out of her mouth. And Wigglesworth reaches over and grabs her chin to where she does, she's not looking at the pastor and he's looking straight into her eyes and he said, come out of her in the name of Jesus. Turns loose of her chin, turns around and walks out of the room. Well, the pastor is still standing there and the girl just basically slows down in cussing him out. That's all she does. She just slows down. She doesn't stop. And so he, he, you know, he's following Wigglesworth out, you know. Wigglesworth goes, he puts on his coat, he's going out the front door. Well, now the girl is following him. And so the pastor is, he's thinking, well, you're leaving. You can't leave. She's not any better. And so finally he walks out, uh, Wigglesworth walks out the front door onto the, to the little front porch there, and the girl's right behind him, and she's just cussing. Now she's cussing Wigglesworth, not just the pastor. And Wigglesworth turns around, points at her, and says, I told you to come out. Turns around, walks away. Well, the pastor, he gets back into the car. He's thinking, what a failure. What an absolute failure. Oh, my goodness, this is worse than if I'd never brought him over there. And so anyway, long story short, he takes Wigglesworth back to the hotel, the place we were staying, whatever it is. And then he, he goes home, and his wife says, well, what happened? He says, nothing. Pastor says, absolutely nothing. It was just a terrible mess. Explains what happened. No apparent results. Three days later, the little girl woke up completely free. See, the pastor's walking by what he sees the results to be. Wigglesworth's walking based on the authority that God gave him in the name of Jesus. If the disciples had done the same thing in Mark chapter 9, they wouldn't have had a problem with this boy either. Now they're questioning, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we do it? Jesus recognized what the problem was. The problem is, if you're going to receive the mercy of God, you've got to get somebody over in faith. Faith is the necessary ingredient to receive anything and everything from God, and His tender mercies are all over all of His works. That means everything God does is based on His mercy. If you're going to receive the mercy of God, you're going to have to say the right thing. You know the difference in Jesus ministering healing in His day, Paul ministering healing in His day, and us ministering healing in our day? Acts chapter 14 is a great example. Paul goes to the city of Lystra and there's a, there's a crippled man there. It said the same heard Paul speak. There they preached the gospel. Look with me to Acts chapter 14. I want you to see some of these things. Now I know what time it is. But you're off tomorrow. Acts chapter 14, this is talking about how they tried to, uh, uh, they plotted to, to uh, stone Paul in a certain place, and so they went to, uh, fled to the cities of Lystra and Derbe, verse 7, and there they preached the gospel. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent at his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. 
the same heard Paul speak, who, steadfastly beholding him, and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. Now, folks, the Bible says in Romans 10, 17, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word. We see in verse 8 that the man had faith, I'm sorry, verse 9, we see that the man had faith to be healed. That means he had to hear something to produce the faith to be healed. What did he hear? Verse 7 says he heard the gospel. He heard Paul preach the gospel. But it would be impossible for the man to have faith to be healed without healing being a part of the gospel that Paul preached. All you have to do is look in the modern day church and prove that. Nobody's getting healed. Why? Because they're not hearing anything about healing. Now, Paul is in a place where nobody's heard a thing about Jesus. He's the first one to go in. No wonder Paul won't like to go places where nobody had been before. It's the places where you get the best results. You know why? Because you can tell people that the mercy to save is the same as the mercy to heal, and you'll have people saved and healed. Why is it different in our day? Because the modern-day church has spent decades, generations, saying God's mercy is extended to the sinner. But you poor sick Christians forget you. No help for you unless some special miracle takes place, but you never know what God's going to do. When the reality is, if we would teach the mercy of God to heal in the same way that we teach the mercy of God to forgive sins, you'd have healings in just as great a measure as you would have people being saved. In fact, you'd have more people getting saved because they'd see the power of God in action. Bosworth, F.F. Bosworth, who wrote the great book, Christ the Healer, he said this. He said when he first went out into the ministry, his whole thing, his whole focus was to get people saved. And he said God began to deal with him and show him some things about healing and and, uh, deal with him about being stronger and speaking more boldly about healing, the healing power of God and so forth. And he said he argued with the Lord about it. He said, Lord, that's not my purpose. It's not my focus. It's not my purpose. It's not what you sent me out here to do. You sent me out here to get people saved. But somehow or another, he just knew that the Lord was impressing upon him to speak more and more boldly about healing. And you know what he found? He found that he got more people saved when the healing power of God was manifested. He got more people saved in a month than he was able to get saved in a year prior. He went on to say it came to the point where we were getting more people saved in a week because they were seeing the mercy of God to heal then they were able to get saved in a year prior to them preaching a healing ministry. So what do we do? Well, we have to keep teaching because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. Let me leave you with two things, folks. First of all, and my whole purpose in this is to impress upon you to have faith in the mercy of God. Mercy to heal, mercy to forgive, Mercy to provide for, mercy to deliver. That's where the mercy of God was exhibited and, and uh, that's what He showed us an example of in Jesus' earthly ministry. Let me remind you of a couple of things. Both of these stories are in Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 5 tells us about the dedication of Solomon's temple. Remember the story? It says that when everything was prepared, when Solomon did everything according to the direction of the Lord to build the temple and, and uh, to, to make everything ready, it says now came the time for the dedication. So it says the singers began to sing. Do you remember what they began to sing? Praise the Lord for His mercy endures forever. And the glory of God filled the temple so that the priests were not able to stand. What is it telling us? It's telling us that when you show faith in God's mercy, His presence comes on the scene. Second Chronicles chapter 20 tells us the story of Jehoshaphat who was the king of Israel, the king of Judah literally. The kingdom Israel was divided in northern and southern kingdom. Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. And five enemy kings come out against them. He is so outnumbered. He is so outmatched. There is no possible way for them to win this battle. But they seek the Lord. They, they fast and they seek the Lord. And the Lord says, I'll fight the battle for you. It's not your fight. Tomorrow go out against them and here's what will happen. Next day they wake up. What do they do? Jehoshaphat puts the singers and the praisers out in front of the army. Why? Because the Word of God is more important than their, than their military strength. Folks, that's true for you. Whether it's business strength, whether it's financial strength, whether it's whatever strength, the Word of God is more important than whatever you think you can do about it. Always put the Word out first. 
How did they do that? It says, and when the singers and the praisers began to sing. What did they sing? Praise the Lord for His mercy endures forever. It says that's when the Lord set ambushments against the enemy and they all wound up killing themselves, killing each other. And then Israel came and took away the spoil and took them three days to carry it away. Now, now I know, I know, I understand. I I have to qualify these things because I understand the modern-day church says that healing's been done away with. The modern-day church says that God doesn't really care about you financially. You're kind of on your own, but make sure to pay your tithes. And, uh, uh, and, you know, and, and give offerings. Make sure to support all these ministries that want your money. But, you know, don't really look for God to help you much. I understand that the modern-day church says all that. And the reason they say that is because Jesus did those things when He was on the earth to prove that He was the Son of God. Now He's proved that, so He doesn't have to do that anymore. I get that. Now, whether all those things are stated or implied, you know as well as I do, that's the, that's the message of the modern-day church, the majority of the modern-day church. But let me ask you a question. Okay, people say that healing has been done away with. People say that, that, that other parts of the things of God have been done away with. It's not like it used to be in, in the early days of the church and when Jesus was here on the earth. Okay, I get that. But can I ask you a question? Has the mercy of God passed away? You know how many times the Bible says, praise the Lord for His mercy endures forever? Do you have any idea? Look it up. Time after time after time after time, over a hundred times, the Bible speaks of the Lord's mercy enduring forever. The Lord's mercy enduring forever. Now, I'll say it again. If the mercy of the Lord now is only extended to the sinner, then that's to say that God cares more about His enemies than He cares about His children. Is that the way it is for you? Do you care more about other people's kids than you do for your own? Not me. Man, I care about my kids. Even when they're not doing right, I still care about my kids. My mind is occupied with things that I can do that are good for my children. I want things better for my kids than I ever had it for myself. And the things that I want, I want for their benefit. And that's exactly the example that God uses when He talks about His goodness and His mercy. Jesus said, if you know how to be good to your children, how much more? How much more? Why? Because the mercy of the Lord endures forever. The mercy of the Lord never changes. Folks, I'm going to make a statement. I know this is going to sound harsh. It's going to sound judgmental, but I'm just making a statement of fact. Nobody has a right to say that the mercy of God has been changed or modified. Jesus said it's better for us that He go away. If His mercy was modified from healing, deliverance, and provision when he was here on the earth, along with forgiveness of sins, to where now it's just forgiveness of sins, how's that better? Somebody explain to me, how's that better? If that's the case, I would have rather lived in Jesus' day and waited in Abraham's bosom for him to be raised from the dead. Yet Jesus said, it's better for you that I go away. Why? Because the mercy of the Lord endures forever. Now not only can we have healing, provision, deliverance, and forgiveness of sins, we can be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and experience all of those benefits because now we can walk hand in hand with God like Adam did in the cool of the garden in the, uh, in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. That's the relationship God wants to, to have with you. He wants to show you how good He is. But you've got to have faith in His mercy. You know what 2012 is for me? It's the year of the mercy of God. Now, I don't know what it's going to be for you. I would invite you to come along with me. But I'm going to show more faith in the mercy of God this year than I've ever done before. And I believe that's something God has really spoken to my heart about. I'm looking for His mercy in a way that I've never seen it before. I might as well just tell you the truth here. I mean, I always tell you the truth, but I mean, just be... Uh Uh-oh. Caught me. Now I'm going to be honest with you about how this came to me. My son doesn't always do the right things. I want my son to follow God better than I followed God. 
And he's not always on board with me on that. I've tried to explain to my son. We saw a movie last year, year before, whenever it was. We saw a movie, and part of the movie was uh, the, the star of the show saying to another person, here's how it is. If you, here's how it is. You're with me, without me. With me, without me. Well, okay, I've started doing that with my kids with God. With God, without God. There's your level of life. Well, I've taught my kids the right thing. My daughter, bless her heart, she, her purest heart I've ever seen in anybody in my life. My son, he wants everything the world's got. He wants to eat of every tree out there. He doesn't care what the commandments of God are. He wants to eat the tree. Drives me up a wall. Son, you don't understand. Let me, let me share with you my experience. Let me share with you what I know about the Word. Let me show you so you can avoid all the heartache that everybody else in the world is going to have by eating of all this wrong tree. Eh. <laughs> drives me crazy. Absolutely drives me crazy. Now, folks, I've seen parents go one of two ways on things. I've seen parents try to be hard on their kids to make them do the right thing. Has anybody ever known that to work? That's what the devil tempts me with. Okay, bless God, if you won't do what I say, I'll make you do it. That doesn't work. It absolutely does not work. I raised my voice at my son the other day and he said, Dad, you can quit hollering at me. I'm not scared of you anymore. Okay, son, thanks for sharing. I appreciate that. That just blesses me. That's the way my dad did. My dad tried to make me do it. He'd, he'd just slap me down. Well, okay, that's the only thing I've known. And so that's, that's, there's a natural tendency that comes to me on things like that. But how does God deal with us? God ever stop being good to us? Doesn't God bring us in by showing us His goodness? Here's what the Lord said to me just, just yesterday. Because there were some things that I've been believing God for and, and, and the, the thought of you don't really think God's going to do that for you has been nagging at me for years on this. And the Lord asked me a question. He said, because I was thinking of something. At that moment, I was thinking of something that I wanted to do for my kids and, and something that would be beneficial for them. Not just my daughter who wants to go with the way of God, but for both of them equally. And so the Lord said, do you think he deserves that? I said, well, of course he doesn't. Absolutely not. He said, but you want it for him anyway, right? And I saw it. I saw it. <clears throat> Just where the Bible says the Lord is full of compassion, I am full of eager yearning to do things for my kids, even when they may not be in the right, pla the right place to deserve it. I still want to do good for them. I still want to do good for them. Now, there, there's a limit to certain things I can do. I can't enable him to go do the wrong things. I can't, as a parent, I can't give my kids a free ride to do things that will be harmful to them. So what am I looking for? I'm looking for them to put themselves in a position where I can be so good to them they wouldn't believe it. <clears throat> That's all I need. Just give me a little hint. Just give me a little bit of encouragement <clears throat> that you want to be in the situation where I can do so good for you. With me, without me. <clears throat> How's that different from how God is with us? <clears throat> Excuse me. Put yourself in a position where God does not have to violate His Word to show His mercy to you and watch what He does. Well, what is that position? Begin to confess His mercy to you. Begin to confess His goodness. Begin to confess that you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but I don't feel like it and I didn't do too well last week. That's why you need to say it. Yeah, but, but, but doesn't the Lord see that as hypocritical? No. Jesus is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. He understands your weaknesses. He understands that you're saying some things just simply in faith because the Bible says it. And that's exactly what He wants you to do. And that's the place that enables you to come boldly to obtain grace and mercy. Folks, your confession is all you have to deal with. That's all, that's all God has to deal with for you. That's all He has to work with. You will eat good by the fruit of your mouth, the fruit of your lips. Your words are what Jesus has to work with. Thank God for His mercy. Let's just lift our hands and thank Him for His mercy. Why don't you stand together with me?
Hallelujah. Lord, we bless you. Blessed be the name of the Lord, for your mercy endures forever. For your mercy to me endures forever. Your mercy toward us endures forever. Oh, Father, we believe in your mercy. We believe in your goodness. Whether we think we deserve it or not, whether we know our, our actions and our works qualify us for what we think we should have, we thank you for your mercy. Father, I know there are people in desperate situations in our church, and we do just like blind Bartimaeus did. We do just like others did. We cry out, have mercy upon us, Lord. Have mercy upon us, Lord. Have mercy upon us. We bless you for your mercy. We thank you for turning things around. We thank you, Father, for healing our bodies, your healing mercies. We thank you, Father, for your mercies of provision. Thank you, Father, for making a way where there is no way because of your mercy. Thank you, Father, for deliverance because of your great mercy. Lord, your mercy endures forever. Your mercy endures forever. Open our eyes to see, Father, that you are disposed to show favors to us. Show us just how good you are, Father. As we confess your word, as we declare, great is your mercy to me, to me, not just to others, but to me. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. But you don't hold our wrongs against us. But that you only want to show us how good you are. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord, you are good. And your mercy endures forever. Your mercy endures forever. Your mercy endures forever. We trust in your mercy, Father, not just your ability. We trust in your mercy. Thank you, Jesus, that you are a merciful and faithful high priest. As we are faithful to speak your word, you are faithful to shower us with your compassion, with your goodness, and with your great mercy. Lord, we love you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And His mercy toward me endures forever. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. We love you.